Okay. Okay. <clears throat> so Proverbs 6 uh, verses 20 to uh, chapter 7 verses 27. So warning against adultery. My son, keep your father's commands and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Bind them upon, upon your heart forever. Fasten them around your neck. When you walk, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will speak to you. For these commands are a lamp, this teaching is a light, and the corrections of discipline are the way to life. Keeping you from the immoral woman, from the smooth tongue of the wayward wife, do not lust in your heart after her beauty, or let her, captive, let her captivate you with her eyes, for the prostitute reduces you to a loaf of bread, and the adulteress preys upon your very life. Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? Can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? So is he who sleeps with another man's wife. No one who touches her will go unpunished. Men do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his hunger when he is starving. Yet if he is caught, he must pay sevenfold, though it costs him all the wealth of his house. But a man who commits adultery lacks judgment. Whoever does so destroys himself. Blows and disgrace are his lot, and his shame will never be wiped away. For jealousy arouses a husband's fury, and he will show no mercy when he takes revenge. He will not accept any compensation. He will refuse the bribe, however great it is. Warning against the adulteress. My son, keep my words and store up my commands within you. Keep my commands and you will live. Guard my teachings as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call understanding your kinsmen. They will keep you from the adulteress, for the wayward wife with her seductive words. At the window of my house, I looked out through the lattice. I saw among the simple, I noticed among the young men, a youth who lacked judgment. He was going down the street near her corner, walking along in the direction of her house at twilight, as the day was fading, as the dark of night set in. Then out came a woman to meet him, dressed like a prostitute and with crafty intent. She's loud and defiant, her feet never stay at home. Now in the street, now in the squares, and at every corner she lurks. She took hold of him and kissed him, and with a brazen face she said, I have fellowship offerings at home, today I fulfilled my vows. So I came out to meet you, I have looked for you and have found you. I have covered my bed with coloured linens from Egypt. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes and cinnamon. Come, let's drink deep of love till morning. Let's enjoy ourselves with love. My husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took his purse filled with money and he will not be home till full moon. And our second reading from the New Testament is 1 Corinthians 6, verses um, 12 to 20, and it's on page 809. <clears throat> Sexual immorality. Everything is permissible for, permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food for the stomach and stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. 
but he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your body. Let's just pray as we come to consider God's word. Father, we thank you that you've spoken to us so clearly and given us such uh, uh, incredible wisdom from your word. We thank you that your word speaks clearly into our world and challenges the culture and the presuppositions of uh, our world. And we pray now that your word would challenge us, that we would be more godly people. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, you may or may not have seen the story in the newspapers a couple of weeks ago about a particular man. He was handsome, charming, super fit and very rich. He'd started poor and began his uh, career at the bottom of the retail ladder. But with hard work and with natural talent, he climbed that ladder. He picked up a degree in business along the way. He was noticed by people who mattered. And in time, he was appointed to the position of Chief Executive Officer of David Jones. You know the story I'm talking about now? Um, uh, in one year alone, before the GFC, uh, I understand that he earned over $7 million from his job. But a couple of weeks ago, there was a knock on his door and his world came crashing down around him as he received a visit from the Human Relations Department of David Jones. Uh, why? What, what, what had happened? Well, what had happened was sexual immorality. That's what had happened. Uh, he was known to be a playboy, and I quote, rampantly heterosexual. Um, there was a work function. There was an unwelcome advance. There was a complaint, followed by an admission of guilt, and then it was all over. It was, he was done for. Uh, the board of directors of David Jones had no option if they wanted to maintain their reputation of being a very clean company. Uh, the uh, job vacancy was filled immediately and all that uh, he needed to do with the company was to go into his office the following Tuesday and uh, pick up his personal effects from his drawers and uh, get out of that place. Uh, mind you, he also had a lot of explaining to do to his uh, three-month pregnant uh, girlfriend. Sexual immorality does great damage. Uh, it damages marriages, families, reputations, careers. It damages lives. Uh, it can even damage your life. And that's one of the reasons why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, that we are to flee from sexual immorality. Flee from it. 
It's actually a very powerful word, the word flee. What, what comes to your mind when you think of someone fleeing? Well, uh, what comes to my mind is someone running. Someone who is uh, running as fast and as far away as they possibly can trying to escape from something or someone. Uh, in fact, uh, I learnt that the English word fugitive actually comes from the Greek word that Paul uses here, which is translated as to flee. It's the word fugare. Uh, it's to be the fugitive. It is to run. It is to escape. It is to get as far away as possible from that very thing that you're fleeing from. Now, last week, as we, as we looked at this uh, topic of sexual immorality, uh, I don't know what you took home from last week's sermon, but one of the critical things that I was trying to impress upon us is from the passage uh, is that if we are Christians, then we are in union with Christ, that we have this one spirit union with him. Well, today... Uh, we see that uh, in the same way that we are in union with Christ, that we are to be passionately disunited, we are to have nothing to do with, we are to flee from sexual immorality. And so can I ask you to open up your Bibles at 1 Corinthians 6 uh, on page 809. Just to recap, as we've studied this passage over the last couple of weeks, uh, we've also seen that what we do with our bodies matters to God because our bodies matter to God. We've also seen, particularly last week, something about the one flesh relationship uh, as that is drawn from uh, the passages in, in, in Genesis chapter 2. And now, uh, here in verses 18 and 19... Paul gives even more reasons why we should flee from sexual immorality. Let's have a look at uh, verses 18 and 19. I'll read those for you. He says, Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. Now let's unpack that a little bit uh, this morning. And firstly by saying that if you are a Christian, then your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Now what does that mean? Well, it means that God dwells in you in the person of his Holy Spirit. And we see the, the model of that in the Old Testament because uh, in the Old Testament uh, we're, we're taught that God symbolically dwelt in the temple in Jerusalem and particularly in what's known as the Holy of Holies, that inner sanctum, that special room where the Ark of the Covenant was, uh, was kept uh, that part of the temple where only one person could enter, and that being the high priest, only once a year, and only after elaborate ceremonial washing. Now, what we see there 
is that uh, the temple is holy because it symbolises the presence of God and that therefore uh, nothing unholy, nothing unclean could have anything to do with the temple. And what Paul is saying here is that that is therefore how we are to view our bodies, especially in regards to this issue of sexual immorality. Our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. But did you notice also in verse 18 that when we sin sexually, we actually sin against our own body? Did you see that? What does that mean? That's a, uh, an unusual thing for Paul to say. Well, of course, there's uh, a bit of discussion about what this means. Uh, let me just say this, that uh, all sin does damage. No matter what sin you're involved in, it is damaging. But there is something unique. There is something uniquely self-destructive about sexual sin. And that's for all of the reasons that we've already talked about over the past couple of weeks, the, the value of our bodies, that one flesh relationship of marriage, uh, what we do with our bodies is something which we do to our very selves. And when we sin with our bodies sexually, the consequences of that are very, very significant our dignity and our self-worth uh, is eroded. Our relationships with other people are impacted. And we need to recognise as Christians that there is a lot of deception in our society. Our world wants to deceive us. Our world says and wants us to believe that sex outside of God's purposes uh, is, you know, sometimes quite okay. Um, they will admit that there are difficulties where it involves adultery, of course. But the degree of promiscuity in our society that we experience and we see is actively promoted uh, by those even who are leading our community. I noticed in the paper the other day that one of our federal politicians was being roundly criticised as being someone who you would not bother voting for and the reason gave, they gave was that he publicly stated that he had uh, advised his daughters not to give away their virginity too, too easily. And that was, what, what did they expect him to say? Give away your virginity easily? Uh, these are, you know, leadership in our community and our culture is saying that promiscuity is fine. Well, do not be deceived because it is profoundly destructive. And that's the reason why we read from those passages in Proverbs 6 and 7. Because in Proverbs 6 and 7, the destructive nature of sexual immorality is well depicted. I wonder if you could uh, turn your Bibles open to Proverbs 6 and 7 for a moment. And we'll just have a closer look at that. I want to draw out a few things from what was read. And uh, firstly, if you have a look at chapter 6, verses 23 to 26, let me read that for you. 
For these commands are a lamp, this teaching is a light, and the corrections of discipline are the way to life, keeping you from the immoral woman, from the smooth tongue of the wayward wife. Do not lust in your heart after her beauty, or let her captivate you with her eyes. For the prostitute reduces you to a loaf of bread, and the adulteress preys upon your very life. Go down to verse 32. But a man who commits adultery lacks judgment. Whoever does so destroys himself. Now let's think about what's being said there. The, the prostitute, well, she, what does she reduce a man to? She reduces a man to a loaf of, of bread. Right? You know, that's his worth in her mind. That, that's all she's actually after. She just wants a loaf of bread. But the adulteress, well, what does she want? She wants your very life. She wants your very life. Um, in chapter 7 that Catherine read, we, we see a uh, story being told of uh, the author looking out the window and seeing a young man walking along and being lured uh, by a woman. And if we pick up just where Catherine left off in the reading, in, um, if you go to uh, chapter 7, verse 22, what does it say? All at once he followed her like an ox going to the slaughter, like a deer stepping into a noose, till an arrow pierces his liver, like a bird darting into a snare, little knowing that it will cost him his life. You see that? You know, that the man who is drawn into adultery is likened to an ox that's going to the slaughterhouse. He's likened to a, a deer which is kind of step, step, stepping into a noose, not knowing that what he's doing is about to cost him his very life. Now, by the way, this is not sexist. Uh, as if it's only women who do the seducing. Uh, Proverbs is written this way because it's a, it's a father giving advice to his son. But I want to ask this question. What does it mean that adultery will cost this man his very life? What does that mean? Well, it seems to me that there are several ways in which Adultery could cost this man his very life. Uh, first of all, in the Old Testament law, what is the punishment for adultery? Death. So it's against the Mosaic law. You know, if, uh, if nothing else, ha you know, it's against the law. The penalty in Israel was death. That's the first way it could cost this fellow his life. But secondly, what does it say in chapter 6, verses 34 and 35? Um, what does jealousy arouse in a husband? What does it say? Fury. Fury. If the law doesn't get you, the husband will. Now, this is a reality, isn't it? I mean, I, I remember talking to a friend the day after he 
got home early from work and found another man in bed with his wife. Kind of a nightmare scenario. And I said to him, how do you feel? He said, well, Scott, I think I now understand why a man would go and buy himself a gun and use it on somebody. That's how he felt. You see, that's got to do with that one flesh union that binds a man and a woman together uh, in God's good purposes. And when that union is broken, it impacts people very, very deeply. And the reaction can be very... If the law doesn't get this guy, the husband may very well get him. But thirdly, thirdly, um, losing your life may not involve physical death, and it usually doesn't in this context. But the question is this. What does a person stand to lose when they commit adultery? Uh, an older Christian man whom I respect said to me one time, he said, Scott, if you, are ever, if you ever find yourself heading down the path towards adultery, then stop and consider what it could potentially cost you personally. Do a stock take of that. Typical scenario. What would it cost you if you commit adultery? Well, the first thing it's going to cost you, um, potentially, uh, is your marriage. Uh, it costs you your relationship with your husband or your wife. Uh, you will lose the love and the respect of your children. That's a potential cost. Uh, you risk the future security of your children should divorce happen. Uh, you will lose many, if not most, of your friends because when you're a couple, your friends are usually friends of both of you. You put them in a terrible situation. Uh, you'll lose, you know, if there's a divorce that happens, more than half of your assets, even if, you know, if greed alone should make you stop and think about this and when they sell the house and uh, divide up the, uh, the money from that. Uh, the new relationship that you're, uh, you've started, well, statistically, that hasn't got a chance of surviving uh, because you're a part of it and it's been initiated so sinfully. And so you'll end up uh, by yourself, you'll end up lonely. And if you don't repent, as we saw a few weeks ago, you will lose the fellowship of God's people um, worst of all, unless you repent, you will lose your relationship with God forever. Now, do not be deceived, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 10. Do not be deceived. The sexually immoral, the adulterer, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, does that frighten you? 
when I, I list through those things. You should be frightened. It frightens me when I think about this. And when I think about the cost that sexual immorality could potentially, what it could potentially cost, the thing I want to do is I want to flee from it. I want to escape from it. I want to get as far away. I want to have nothing to do with sexual immorality. Now, the focus in Proverbs 6 and 7, of course, is on adultery. But uh, looking around here, there's uh, people in the congregation here who are not married. And so just a brief word to singles, especially our young singles. Our society tells us that uh, casual sex for singles is quite a natural, quite a normal thing to do. You know, go and sow a few wild seeds before you settle down, all of that sort of stuff. But the one flesh relationship is designed for marriage. It profoundly binds two people together. And marriage is about trust, love and commitment. And when we play around with sex outside of marriage, we're playing with fire. We really are. Sex without the trust, the love, the commitment of marriage. Sex with a person who may not be there in the morning leaves a person with deep emotional scars, damaged. Not irreparably damaged because of the gospel, thankfully, but damaged. Don't believe the lie. Flee from sexual immorality. Now, how can we do that? Well, how much time have we got? Uh, there is a lot that could be said about how we could flee from sexual immorality. But I just want to focus on one key issue this morning, and that is that when we understand how sexual immorality happens, um, particularly I want to focus on adultery, when we understand how adultery happens, then we're in a much better position to be able to flee from it. In Proverbs 7, as was read to us, adultery is portrayed as being a trap, something which ensnares people. Now, that's true. Um, think about this. Christians who love their God, Christians who love their husband or their wife, Christians who love their children, Christians who love their church, they don't just wake up one day and say, gee, I think I'll become an adulterer. That's not what happens. Now, the journey into adultery is a, usually, it is a slow and a gradual process. It happens one small step at a time as subtle but yet important boundaries are crossed and the evil one draws the Christian closer to the destination. During the week I, I read a study on adultery. Uh, it was a study where Christians were Christians who had committed adultery but had repented were surveyed 
and they're asked to contribute uh, their experiences as to what they did and how it happened to them. And uh, it was said in the study that uh, many of the people who contributed to the uh, research did so at great cost uh, with tears. In fact, I, I found myself um, teary as I read through it because I realised that this is not academic, that uh, it actually mirrored the uh, situations of uh, a number of people who I know and I love, Christian people, and what they had uh, done and how it had impacted their lives. But I found some of the quotes from people were very telling, and so I've compiled some of these quotes. I want to read them to you. These are uh, quotes from different people, uh, both men and women, different relationships. So this is not one relationship that is described here. It's a variety of different relationships. But the picture which is painted is the same progression which was found to be almost uniform in terms of the steps that people took that led to adultery. And they started just with uh, normal friendships, normal social interactions and the uh, sharing of common interests and so on. But um, let me just listen to these quotes and what I'll do is I'll tell you what the quote, quote is and I'll pause and I'll tell you another quote and see if you can detect what the progression in the relationship is. Quote, he was so spiritually minded. I'd been looking for someone to share my spiritual struggles with. Heard that one before? Quote, she was so understanding and would listen to me and my hurts, whereas my wife was always busy and rushed and didn't have time to talk. Quote, no one ever believed in me until he came along. Quote, Every time I drove by her house, I would think of her and how we would see each other in church on Sunday. Quote, when my wife would ask if she was in the group that I'd been to, I'd pretend that I couldn't remember. Right there, I started building a wall between myself and my wife. Quote, We would talk about things, not big things, just little things, which he cared about and I was worried about. Quote, He never touched me for months. Then one night, after working late at the office, we were walking toward the door when he said, you're so special, thanks for all you do. And then he turned and hugged me tenderly, just for a second. I loved how I felt. Quote, I started figuring out ways I could drop something off at her house 
when I knew that her husband would not be there. Quote, she would sometimes call me just before lunch at work and we'd sneak out together and spend the rest of my lunchtime quietly talking to each other. Quote, once we started meeting secretly, the end came fast. We kissed and hugged like two teenagers going parking for the first time. Quote, when my husband and I were dating, we struggled with the question of how far to go. Well, here I was again, struggling with that same question. Quote, one night we couldn't seem to stop ourselves, so I completed the journey of unfaithfulness to my husband. Do you see the progression? It starts with normal interaction, the innocent sharing of common interests. That's fine. But then you get this kind of negative comparisons with the person's spouse. You know, oh, she really listened to me. She really understood. Whereas my wife, you know, she's too busy looking after the kids and, you know, she never listened to me. And then there's the kind of looking forward to seeing the person. I drive past her house and I think, gee, I'll see her on, in church on Sunday. A bit of flirting, a bit of creating opportunities to be with the person. Then a bit of physical contact, a little hug when no one else is around. Secret meetings, getting together for lunch. Then there's cover-up, deceit, spinning a web of lies to the husband or the wife. And then finally, sexual relationship. Now this person, these people didn't wake up one day and say, gee, I'm going to commit adultery. There's nothing planned about it. It's just step by step as small boundaries are crossed. How do we flee from that? That's the question. How do we flee from it? One of the things I found helpful is to note that uh, when Paul says to flee from sexual immorality, um, grammatically the word he uses for flee is in the present continuous tense. And uh, what that means is it means keep on fleeing. It means uh, be in the habit of fleeing from sexual immorality. Be in the habit of it. Now, how do we develop habits? Well, bad habits, they're easy to develop. You don't have to do too much hard thinking about that. But good habits, they don't come naturally, do they? Good habits require thought, they require decision, they require commitment to that decision. And if, if we're to understand what can lead to immorality, or rather if we do understand what can lead to immorality, then we can make decisions about habits and about boundaries 
that we will not cross because we see those, those boundaries as being on the pathway towards immorality. So we need to make decisions. You know, decisions about uh, what TV shows, what websites, what magazines we're going to expose ourselves to. We need to uh, stick to those decisions. But we need also to make decisions about how we're going to relate to members of the opposite sex. Uh, that is, what situations will we not allow to happen? Like going out and having lunch together when you're married to someone else. Like working alone in the office with that other person. Nobody else around. Uh, like, you know, dropping by at the person's place when you know for a fact that the husband's not there. Or you haven't even checked to see if you'll be there before you've, you've gone around. Or whatever situations uh, which may lead you to, to feelings and emotions which draw you closer to that person and by necessary implication 